0: You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Prison Poems, Citizens of Joy in Circumstance of Suffering. In this series from Paul's letter to the Philippians, we learn how to press into the source of true joy, citizenship in heaven through our union with Christ.
1: Now hear the word of the Lord. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God.
0: Well, thank you, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Travis, and I'm one of the pastors here. And today we continue our second uh, sermon in our sermon series from the book of Philippians, um, a letter that is written by Paul um, while he is in prison. And uh, um, and the central theme of it is joy, even in the midst of difficult and trying circumstances. Um, Here recently, I wanted to get some space um, to myself. And um, one of the things that I'll do um, is um, I try to get time alone, um, especially if I feel like uh, my life and the world around me is very um, demanding. And So I try to go to a place to where, or be in a place to where there are less demands. And so I went hiking, um, which is often what I do um, to get time and space alone. And so I went way out 64 West, um, out in southwestern Indiana, into an area that I had been to before. And uh, one of the things that I did, um, I was hiking along a trail that I was familiar with, and there's a section in the trail that has a bit of an L shape to it. And so what I had done was, I had gone up this portion of the L and I had um, kind of looked at some, some sights and sceneries at the kind of the top um, of it. And, then it and then it cuts over and as it was cutting over I knew this, this path and it was a long path and so I was thinking to myself because it's kind of my favorite section of the path it's kind of long and straight and has a series of hills and it's um, just a really pretty section and so I was looking forward to it and as I'm walking through the woods I hear to my right your left the rustling of leaves. And generally, whenever it's a, a squirrel or a rabbit, you have some combination of kind of loud and soft rustling of leaves. And so it might be soft and then kind of loud because the, the, uh, the critter is, uh, is hopping through the leaves. But, but this sound, it was slower and it was more paced. And it was, the, it was the first of three unexpected guests that I had on my hike. And so I heard it, and it was slow, and it was paced, and then there was a pause, and then, lo and behold, a snake came out. My oldest son asked me recently, he said, Dad, do you like snakes? And I said, well, I don't know that I like snakes. I don't know that I dislike them either. I just generally assume that, you know, we kind of mind our own business and go about our separate ways. And so the snake came out and he he perched up and he was, I started to say he was standing there staring at me and I was standing there staring at him. But it was more like he was laying there staring at me and I was standing there staring at him. And I paused and I wasn't doing anything and he wasn't doing anything and we were just staring. Wasn't a whole lot to say at that point in time. We were having a, bit of a communication breakdown. And so finally, he settled down and then he just scurried back off into the foliage. And that was my first unexpected guest. My second unexpected guest is a guest that I'm often familiar with who shows up unannounced. And that was grief. Because what happened was, is I immediately in my mind moved towards thinking to myself, well, my dad would like to hear about this story because I remember being a kid. And one of the things my father would not be approving of is me walking through the woods when the weather gets warm for this very reason. But my dad passed away a number of years ago, as I've often talked about. And I can't call him. And so the second unexpected guest showed up. And and what I've found with Grief is he's a strong unexpected guest early on. And at times you're aware of when he's going to show up. At times such as birthdays and holidays, graduations, weddings, very significant events, rhythms and patterns in people's lives. But other times he just shows up unannounced. And at this stage... It's more of a sl- more of a sort of flat sadness and experience. And then I thought to myself, "Well, now that he's here, he's going to be present with me the rest of the day." And so I I became sad. And then, for that matter, I in some ways became sad about the fact that I was sad because I was expecting this to be. Um, restful and a joyous occasion. Then I'd finished my hike, and I went about, and however many hours later, I eventually end up back at home, and my oldest two kids, it was near dinner, they came in the living room where I was at, and then I started telling them the story about my hike. And I started telling them the story about myself and the snake. And then my oldest children, at least they, I don't know if they like my rhetorical abilities or my ridiculous antics, but they enjoy it whenever I tell a story and if I'm kind of over the top and over exaggerated about everything. So I was telling the story about myself and the snake and I was kind of being over-dramatic, and we were getting a good laugh about it. And then I moved towards telling them Um, stories about my father, their grandfather, and myself and him, and one of our encounters with snakes, too, and what we did with the slayed beast and the remains of him, which can be summarized by the theologian Wayland Jennings that said what we did was ornery and mean, and that'll be a sermon illustration for another date, And so we talked about some of those encounters. And then I talked to them about my grandfather and some of our, my memories of him and, and this creature. And then I found my third unexpected guest. And that was joy. I wasn't prepared for the fact that after the initial experience and then after the sadness that came... I wasn't prepared that joy was coming to. And it seems to me, as I look at that pattern of that experience, that there is some sort of experience that's followed by pain, and that there's a delay, and then joy shows itself. It fits with what took place here in the Apostle Paul's life, and what it is that he is trying to communicate as he writes to the Philippians. And he tells them how his imprisonment has energized other Christians to share the gospel and how it's given him opportunities to share the gospel with prisoners and how he rejoices in the fact that even in his suffering, the gospel is advancing. And so it's with all of that in mind that I pray that you hear one thing today. And that is, Christian joy follows pain. The Christian is going to find joy on the other side of pain. There are three ways that a Christian will find joy on the other side of pain. First, the Christian will find joy on the other side of pain because it leads us towards deep relationships. First, it leads us towards deep relationships. Second because it shapes our vision of the present. And then third, because it shapes our vision of the future. First, the Christian will find joy on the other side of pain because it moves them towards deep relationships. Paul, so Paul has written this letter and kind of the way um, letters worked in those days is at the beginning of it, you would express your gratefulness for your friends, and you kind of talk about what's going on with you, and you would often maybe share a prayer and say, you know, I'm grateful for you, thankful this is what I'm praying for you. And that's what Paul does in Philippians. And and so he does that, and then he moves towards addressing his situation. And Paul knows, because he's had an ongoing relationship with these Christians, he knows they're going to be concerned about him because they were the ones that took the initiative. What they did was they took the initiative to send someone to Paul to bring him a gift. And Philippians is essentially his thank you letter back to them. And so he knows that they're going to be concerned about him. He knows that they're going to have some sense of anxiousness with regards to what it is that he is dealing with. And so what does he do? Well, he, he really takes the focus off of himself and and puts it on them to ease their concerns and gives them the bigger perspective of how he sees his imprisonment. Look here with me in Philippians 1 verse 12. Now I want you to know brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Did you see how he he spoke about them? Did you see what he calls them? He calls them family. It's it's interesting to me that as he talks about it he doesn't he doesn't really initially start talking about how hard the situation is, he starts out being focused about them, calling them brothers and sisters, referring to them by familial language, referring to them and showing affection and concern about them. He takes the initiative to say something that would ease their concerns. Hey, I just want to let you know, the way I see this is what has happened to me there's a bigger picture involved and the Lord is spreading the gospel through what has happened to me so that they can breathe deep. But again, it's the kind of relationship, he has the kind of relationship with the Philippians that transcends geography. It it transcends the distance that's between them. They're in Philippi, he's in Rome. and, And guess what? They took the initiative to reach out to Paul and Paul is taking the initiative to say, hey, I care about you all and you don't need to be worried about me. I can see what God is doing. He is looking to ease their concerns by the way he addresses them. He has deep relationships with them that is based on the initiative it's based on each one of them taking initiative and and isn't that the nature of relationships like let me ask you who is it that you have a deep relationship with and and how did that relationship start and for that matter how did it become deep and and i would think that if you look to answer those questions and you you begin to to question about how that's possible, how the depth and the relationship begins, somebody has to take the initiative. And then for that matter, somebody has to take it upon themselves to say, I'm going to do something to deepen this relationship. I'm going to do something so that this relationship moves farther than just surface-oriented kind of relationships. Somebody has to take the initiative. And that's what these parties have done. They had relationships that were marked by depth that was the result of their own initiative. Let me ask you, who do you have? Who in your life would you say you have a deep relationship with? And how did it get that way? How did the deep relationship come about? We learn something about relationships here. We learned that if you want deep relationships, it's you who need to take the initiative. Deep relationships aren't going to happen as the result of you you sitting and waiting for other people to approach you. Deep relationships will take place as the result of you taking the initiative to establish the relationship. It will be you taking the initiative to move the relationship to a place of depth and substance. Who do you have to where you can say it's a deep relationship. And if you can say, I don't have necessarily deep relationships, then I would ask you this. Are you going to take the first step? Will you take the first step? And if you won't take the first step, then for what reason? It's a scary thing to take the first step. It's a scary thing to establish a deep relationship because the likelihood of, re- of rejection is high and there's a possibility, but I can assure you, that on the other side of of whatever fear that you may or may not have, there is the possibility of really deep relationships that even when you are hurting and crying and in pain can give way to joy. For the Christian, they're going to find joy on the other side of pain because those kind of experiences move them towards deep relationships. Second, it it shapes the way they view the present. When I was first a Christian, I asked the Lord on multiple occasions, God, please give me the opportunity to share the gospel with my family and friends. I just wanted that. I asked for that all the time. And in various times and in various ways, he granted me those opportunities. And oftentimes they were kind of on -on one-on-one encounters. And there were varying responses to those encounters. It wasn't like every time I showed up and ran my mouth, people were just saying, oh, what must I do to be saved? It wasn't necessarily that way. And it never is but I remember becoming overwhelmed with the task of even what I was asking for. Because what I was asking for was in one way, geographically would be very difficult because I had family that was scattered all over the country. I mean, I had family in Salt Lake City and Chicago and New York and Washington DC area. They were all over the place. And then what happened was I was given the opportunity to share the gospel with a very large amount of my family all at the same time. It was at the funeral of my grandmother. I was asked to speak. And I believed then, as I believe now, that it would dishonor the woman if I didn't speak about what was most fundamental about her And that was, to translate into English, that the Lord had mercy on her sins. And this was, I had had stepped up to speak. And I spoke from Matthew 26 about the woman who had cried over Jesus' feet and anointed his feet with oil. Which was fitting because I remember much of my life her sitting in her bed, praying and crying and praying for God to do a work in her life and the lives of her family members. And whenever I got up and I looked out to the auditorium, which was set up similar to the auditorium here, I realized that really for the first time since my family had immigrated to the States, that all of her children, the majority of her grandchildren, Her nieces, nephews, cousins of the family, were located in one place. And I was given the opportunity to talk about my grandmother's life, to honor her memory, and to share with them the truth about a God who saves, whose name is Jesus. And I realized that the Lord had answered my prayer while I was standing next to the casket of my grandmother. You see, the Lord answers prayers at times in ways that you don't expect. It's one of the tricky things about praying is you, by faith, are putting your request in the hands of a God who can do whatever he wants, however he wants. And at times, that's exactly the way he does it. That was true for me. And it's true with the apostle Paul. You see, Paul in Romans 15 prays and he asks, he asks for the opportunity to go to Rome and to to share the gospel there. And the Lord gave him that opportunity while he was under house arrest. Look here with me in Philippians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. As a result, it's been clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters has become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What Paul comes to realize is, that the palace guard now is hearing the gospel, these were the most powerful and influential uh, most powerful and influential soldiers in all the world and the nature of paul's house arrest was is they would have to stand on guard. he was essentially chained to one of them, and they worked four hour shifts in those days, and so you could imagine Paul is seeing now that he he is now having the fulfillment of his desire, which is to preach the gospel in Rome. And he's sharing the gospel with the most powerful soldiers in the entire world. And for that matter, these are the most powerful and influential soldiers the world had ever known. And we still speak about the Roman empire. And he's in chains and he realizes but the Lord is giving him the opportunity. And so every four hours, whatever, some soldier comes up named Maximus and says to Paul, what are you in for? And he's like, well, Max, I'm glad you asked. You see, I'm here because of a man named Jesus of Nazareth and he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. And Max, I'm letting you know he's coming back and you need to trust in him. And so then four hours go by, assuming that Roman traffic isn't holding him up. And then Claudius shows up and says to Paul, hey, what are you in for? And he's like, well, Claude, I'm glad you asked. There's a man named Jesus of Nazareth and he is Lord, not your boss Caesar. And he died on a cross and he rose from the dead and he's coming back and you need to believe in him. And every four hours, the shift changes. And before too long, were the soldiers even saying amongst themselves, hey, there's this Paul guy. Were the soldiers even sharing the gospel? There's this Paul guy, get ready, because he's gonna come here and talk about um, this Jewish Messiah Savior. And Paul looks at that. And he's like, he has a reason to be joyful. Because though he is shackled, he's got a captivated audience. And not only that, but Paul is also able to see that his sufferings are energizing other people to share the gospel. Look here with me again in verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear Paul's saying because of his chains, he's able to, he's seeing, he's connecting with other Christians in that area who are saying in essence, look, if Paul can share the gospel where he's at in shackles, what are we doing here? They are moved away from fear and they are moving towards faith. And there they are spreading the gospel. And Paul looks at that. And in that very moment, he's able to see God is doing something. He's able to see the invisible hand of God. And he is, he finds joy and he's encouraged. He knows something. And this is something you need to know, Christian, that your pain has a redemptive purpose. Your pain has a reason to bring about growth and transformation in the life of other people. It's not merely, yes, it's good. And yes, it's true. And James chapter one says that God uses suffering to develop patience in us. Paul will say in Romans five, that God uses suffering to develop character and steadfastness and generosity and faith and hope. That's absolutely true. It's good. But at the same time, that's not all that the scripture says. Part of the reason for your suffering is to benefit someone else. And Paul's able to see that. And on the other side of that, he finds joy. Christian, be encouraged. Be encouraged that your pain is not purposeless. Your pain has a reason, has a real reason. And that reason is to move other people from fear to faith we can apply this we can apply this in one way is to say let's let's become a church that's encouraging let's become a church that that stops what we're doing at times takes our eyes off of ourselves and puts it on other people and to say i don't know if you know this but i see god at work in your life like tell somebody you can stop what you're doing right now you can you can Take a break from watching this for all I'm concerned and call somebody or text them or even look at them and to say, hey, look, I know how, I want you to know that the Lord has used your suffering to transform me. I'm a better person. I'm a better mom because of your suffering. I'm a better dad because of your suffering. I'm a better friend. I'm a, I'm a better employee. I'm a better boss, whatever it is. Tell them, let us become a church that shows encouragement to people. In addition to that, maybe you're the person going through the suffering and you, you need to say, you need to apply it by saying, God, please help me see where you're at work. Like, let us make that our prayer. God, help me to see where you are at work because sometimes it's not possible for you to see it. And just be ready because it might be that somebody else comes up to you and points it out. This is evidence to me in your life of God's grace in your life. Wait for it. There's a call in this passage, there's a theme in this passage of waiting for joy to take place after the suffering comes. It's not immediate. Change is able to take place after suffering, but it's not going to be immediate. If it is immediate, then it's probably going to be short-lived. Paul, Paul's vision has been transformed by the Spirit of God. To see the gospel at work, And to see the gospel transforming other people. And because of that, he finds joy. Third, joy can be found on the other side of pain because it because it shapes. It shapes the way we see the future. So Paul, as the as the movement of the passage. Takes place, he's talking about his his present situation of the imprisonment, the advancement of the gospel, the, the newfound energy in the lives of other Christians. And then he moves his mind and he moves the letter towards thinking about the future. And he says, in essence, that he's torn. And he's torn between what's he want. Generally, when you're planning for the future, you may ask the question, what do I want? And for Paul, what does he want? And he says, well, I'm torn between what I want with regards to my relationships. Look here with me. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. And I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ... What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is by far better. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. When Paul looks out into the future and and he's answering the question of what do you want, he interprets the future through the lens of relationships. And he says, well, if you ask me, he at one level, you can see he's, he's convinced he's going to be released. I mean, you have to think, he's in, he is under house arrest. He is awaiting possible execution from the hands of one of the most murderous emperors the world has ever known. And he's, he's content. And he says, he says, look, I'm convinced I'm going to be released. I'm not concerned about it. But if you want me to get down to the, to the deep parts of my heart, then with regards to me and what I want for myself, for me to, die Christ, to, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Like, so what if he takes my life? He's only giving me Jesus. Because Paul knows, as he has said at other times, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so for him, he says, that's, that's far better. And I just assume have that. But then, but he says, I'm torn because I don't just have a relationship with Christ. I have a relationship with you, Philippians. And so he says, for your sake, I just assume be alive so that I can go on with my work and we can reconnect and we can get back to the way things were. let me ask you, what do you want? What is it that you want for the future? How do you you orient your gaze towards the future? And when somebody asks you, what do you you want in the next 10 years? What do you want in the next 20 years? What do you want in the next year? What do you want in the next week? How do you answer that question? Do you answer it based on activities? Well, I wanna do these things. I want to I take vacation. I want to get a new promotion. I want to move out of this house and into another house. How do you answer that question? What do you want? Is it based on activities? Is it based on some sort of goal, things you want to achieve? I want to I graduate from school. I want to become a doctor. I want to open my own business. Is it based on activities? goals that you've set? What would would our church look like? And what would your life look like if when you looked out in the future, you said, who's who's a person that I can bless in the next five to 10 years? What do I want my relationships to look like? Who do I want to know? Who do I want to develop a deep and abiding relationship with? What would happen to us How would it cause you to orient your life and what steps would you take? According to Paul, when you ask questions about the future and you look at it through a relational lens and you take steps towards that, he he indicates that whenever you orient your future towards the relationships and benefiting and blessing other people, you will find joy on the other side of that. And that's what he's done. And he's found the contentment because he is looking at the next next phase of his life through the lens of who he wants to connect with. And we shouldn't be surprised by that as Christians, that if you orient your future gaze towards who it is that you want to know and who it is that you want to bless, that joy will come. We shouldn't be surprised by that because we're Christians. And we shouldn't be surprised that if we orient our future gauge towards relationships, that even when we're in the midst of pain, we know that joy, joy will follow soon. Because isn't that what our Lord Jesus did? As he looks out at his future, and it was one that was marked by pain. According to the word, And demonstrated in the Lord's Supper, on the night when he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body, broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine, and after giving thanks, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Take, drink of this, do this in remembrance of me. The Lord Jesus approached his future pain. And he looked out into the future and he says, I'm doing this for the sake of the relationships of other people. And as the result, we found joy. So with the elements that you have in front of you, I invite you to remember that the body of Christ was broken for you. The blood of Christ was shed for you. And know that this is a foretaste of the future joy that we have, because every time we take from this bread and we drink from this cup, we are announcing the Lord's death until he returns, until he returns and we sit down with him face to face and he will wipe away all the tears from our eyes and there'll be nothing but relationships and joy in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together.
1: Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series, audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.